It's always a great day when you get to talk about Easter. Um, Easter is one of those uh, pivotal moments in a, in a calendar year. It's one of those moments that we look forward to for weeks and months in advance. Um, and Easter means a lot of things to a lot of different people. You know, it's kind of crazy, all the things that kind of traditions that come up around Easter. For a lot of people, Easter is kind of the uh, unofficial or for them the official start of spring, even though the calendar says that it starts uh, towards the end of March, that people, well, this is when spring really begins, Easter happens, and people want to wear, you know, new clothes and spring clothes. And, you know, when I was growing up, I don't know if this still applies or not, but, you know, you could, there are certain colors you couldn't wear till Easter had happened, and then after that, you could do that. And so you have that. I mean, you think about some of the crazy things kids do around Easter. You got, I mean, we hide eggs from them, and then they find them. Right. Or uh, some of us were there last week uh, at the not so spring like feel of the Mallstrike Park uh, Easter egg hunt, which was basically we just threw eggs out on the field and kids ran to them. There was no hunting. But inside of that, the reason kids love Easter eggs is because what's inside of that candy. Right. And Easter also kind of ends what is a monumental run of candy for kids. I mean, you start at October 31st with Halloween, and then you've got Christmas and Valentine's Day and Easter, and then the candy faucet shuts off, right? I mean, at our house, we get so much candy at each of those events, it's like we can't get rid of the candy before the next event comes along. And what I've discovered this week, and this was surprising to me, that Easter candy is perhaps the most divisive candy out there. Because there are some people that love specific Easter candies and some people that do not like them at all, right? For instance, a a perennial Easter favorite are the Peeps, all right? How many of you out there like Peeps? Where are my Peeps at, right? How many of you, like me, are sensible and, no, those are nasty, right? Now, here's the thing, all right? Peeps, Peeps seem like a really good idea. Like marshmallows rolled in crystallized sugar. That sounds awesome. The problem is, oftentimes when you eat a peep, it tastes like they were rolled in that sugar last Easter and have been sitting on a shelf until this moment, right? So peeps. Now, the next one, the second we'll put it, put it up because I'm a little concerned about some of you in the room. Um, the next one, uh, there were iconic commercials for this growing up. It was only around at Easter. It, it centered around, I think it's an English company that would bring it over here for Easter. And it, it just has always bewildered me with the intrigue people have with it. It's this. All right. <laughs> no, no applause for that. Because for some of us, Easter not only symbolizes all the things I've talked about, it's also like the allergy apocalypse. And the inside of that egg kind of looks like what comes with allergy apocalypse, right? Is that too far? Was that too much? <laughs> all right. But it's Cad- right, Cadbury eggs, right? So people, people, I mean, how many of you are Cadbury eggs fans, right? So we will pray for all of you, all right? And then there is this iconic Easter candy, the chocolate bunny. Isn't that sweet? How many of you, anybody get a chocolate bunny today? Do you know if it's hollow, the person that gave it to you doesn't love you? Do you know that? 
I don't know if you were aware of that reality or not. And so there's some candies that are kind of divisive. But there are two candies that you cannot love Jesus and not also like. Okay, I'm just, that may be a stretch, but a small one, all right? About 10 years ago, my life was changed. I was in Walmart in a small town in rural West Tennessee when I happened upon something that would forever change the course of my existence. And it's this. Now, not just jelly beans, because I'm not a fan of jelly beans. These are Starburst jelly beans. And if you get, especially now they put them in packs of just the flavor reds, it will change your life, all right? (laughs) But the greatest Easter candy of all is undisputably this. Right? Because... You can put Reese's peanut butter and chocolate together in a pumpkin, in a Christmas tree, in an American flag. It does not matter. When you put those two together, it is unbelievable. So part of Easter is the candy, right? Part of it is also that in Easter, we like to dress up in new clothes and it means that we end up at church. I mean, this is, this is part of Easter tradition. In our part of the world especially, it's still part of tradition that on Easter you go to church. Which means, and I realize this as I stand before you today, there are some of you, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, who aren't really excited about being here today. I mean, I heard about a conversation that happened this morning. A wife was getting ready. She said, we're going to church. It's Easter. And she got ready. And as she was coming out, she thought it was about time to leave. Her husband was still sitting in the recliner in his pajamas. He said, what, what are you doing? It's time, to, it's time to go to church. He said, I'm, I'm not going to church. We're not going to church. It's Easter. We've got to go to church. I, I'm not going to church. And I'll give you three reasons why. First of all, those people there aren't friendly. Second of all, they're all suspicious of me. And third, I just don't like it. I'm not going. His wife looked at him and said, you're going. And here are the reasons. First of all, they are friendly. I've seen them shake their hands. Secondly, they're suspicious only in your own mind. And third, you're the pastor. You have to go. <laughs> all right? And so, some of you are here against your will. Now, here's the thing. I really am glad to be here. And I'm really glad you're here. Because Easter is the pivotal moment. The most important day on the entire Christian calendar. And it addresses one of the most um, frequently used kind of misconceptions about Christianity or myths about Christianity And that is that people want to separate the moral teachings and life of Jesus from the supernatural events of his life. They say, man, man, that Jesus guy was awesome, man. You know, the shirts that Jesus is my homeboy. Like, he's awesome. He told people he forgave them. He's he's the one that said, don't judge lest you be judged. That Sermon on the Mount, man, it's awesome. It brings a tear to my eye to read what he said. They're so, so special. But that, that miracle stuff, now, now that, I'm not so sure about. Or man, I mean, Jesus was an awesome teacher. I mean, you can read his stuff. People still use his stuff. Uh, that, that whole deal about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. And pray, man, that's awesome. That's how we all should live. But now, you don't actually expect me to believe that he was dead and came back to life. Here's the problem with that. All that good stuff that you know about Jesus' teaching and his life and his morality, 
all came from people who wrote about it, who believed he actually came back from the grave. And you can't really separate those two from each other. If the resurrection isn't true, Paul said this. Paul, who was a follower of his, believed in the resurrection, wrote, I mean, stuff that people use. He wrote the love chapter in 1 Corinthians that people use at weddings to this day. Paul, who wrote all that stuff, said that if you don't believe, if the resurrection is not true, then everything we do is useless. So here's what I want to do today. We're going to talk about Easter, but we're going to take us a minute to get there. Because I want to tell you a story. But I want to tell you a story thinking about what we just talked about in our mind. That if Jesus is raised from the dead, then all these teachings and all these stories aren't just cute little things or wise words of advice. They are spoken to us by one who came back from the dead. And the challenge I want you to do today, because we're going to, it's a story that many of you, from the moment I begin it, you're going to know what it is. You're going to understand, hey, I know that story and maybe I'm tuning that out. But I want you to listen to it, not as cute little story, but as Jesus summarizing his life and what life in general is all about. The story we're going to talk about today, Charles Dickens, the writer who wrote Great Expectations and Tale of Two Cities and Christmas Carol, he said this is the finest short story ever written. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. By the way, if you don't have your Bibles, the, most of the stuff will be on the screen, but we've also provided a way that you can find this real easily if you've got a smartphone, which is uh, probably all of you, right? If you just go to fbcgoodlessville.com slash Luke 15, the scripture for today will be right there, all right? And so if you want to go there, you can go there. But we're going to, while you're turning, I'll just kind of set the scene. We are, um, we're going to talk today about the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15 tells this story, and there's three basic characters, three characters that really have any kind of play at all in the story. There's a younger son, there's an older son, and then there's the father. And there are a couple of misconceptions that I want to get out of the way before we get into the story. And then we're going to journey through the story together as a picture of the life of Jesus. But the, the couple of misconceptions is, first of all, most people think that the main character of the story is the prodigal son. Now, where in the world would people get the idea that the prodigal son is the main character of the story called the prodigal son? It's kind of in the title, right? But the truth is, the father is mentioned more than the son and is the main character of the story. So remember that. Put that in the back of your head. Secondly, there's a misconception about what the word prodigal means. A lot of people think prodigal means runaway or rebellious or bad. But that's not what the word means. The word at its essence means reckless or wasteful or over the top or too much or too far. And so when we read the story, the word prodigal only happens once in here. But what I want you to see is the story overall gives a picture not just of a son who lived in a prodigal way, but also of a father who is prodigal in his love, over the top, far reaching. So our story begins in verse 11 of chapter 15 of the book of Luke. And it says this, and he said, that's Jesus telling the story. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, now here's kind of what you have to understand. We're going to leave it right there for a minute and talk about it. In their day and time, that whenever there was a dad and he had two sons, only sons got inheritance. Daughters didn't get inheritance, just sons. The oldest son got a two share and the younger son would have got a 
one share. So what that means is, with just two sons in a family, older son gets two-thirds, younger son gets one-third. Now, when did they get that? When he dies, right? And so the younger son comes to the dad and says, hey, I want what I'm supposed to get when you die now. Basically, what he says to the dad in their culture would have been interpreted this way. He comes to him and he says, listen, dad, hey, listen, the only way you're really good to me is after you die. And that doesn't seem like it's going to happen very soon. And so if you could just go ahead and give me the money now, we'll call it even. Now, what that implied was when he took the share, if the dad gave him the share, it meant that all relationship would be cut off. He says, once I take the money, it as is as if you have died already. And I'll never see you again. Now listen, I have four kids. I cannot think of something more hurtful to hear than for one of my kids to come to me and say, I don't ever want to see you again. If you could just give me the money that's due to me, you won't see your grandkids. I don't want you to call. I don't want you to text. I don't want you to try to Facebook friend me. I don't want you to find me on Twitter. We're done. I just need the money, Dad. And that's what the son did. Now, those of you that are parents, imagine if one of your kids came to you and said that. Maybe there's somebody here that's had a kid say that. Like, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I cannot think of anything that would hurt more. In this story, what Jesus intends for us to understand is that the younger son's question is a picture of the sin in our lives. That scripture says that all of us have gone astray. All of us have sinned. All of us have said to God, God, we no longer want your control. We no longer want what you say. We're going to make our own way. We're going to go on our rules. We're going to do our own thing. And God, if you could just kind of bless that and say, okay, go, that would be great. I don't really want you around anymore. And that sin at his essence is saying to a father, I'm done with you. I want you out of my life. I'm going to make my own decisions. And Scripture says that every single one of us has done it. We don't want God controlling us. We don't want God telling us. We don't want some archaic old stuff telling us how to live today. We think we know best. God, if you could just stay out of the picture, that would be great. What happens in the next verse is the first major surprise of the story. And there are lots in here. Verse 12, it says this. And he, that's the father, divided his property between them, that's the sons. You see, here's what it doesn't tell you in this, because everybody he was telling the story to would have known that. In the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, it tells that if a son asks the question that the younger son asks in this story, that the punishment for asking that question is death. Not like, oh, you don't mean that, like death. And if you didn't want him to die, like that's a little too severe, then what you did is you called the entire community together and you said, y'all aren't going to believe what just happened, but my son here said he would rather have me dead than alive and asked me for his share of the inheritance. So here's what he's going to get. Jack squat. Nothing. And they had a piece of pottery and they would get the entire community around, all the family around. They would put the son out in front and they said, this vase represents you and your relationship to us and they would smash it on the ground and say we never want to see you again goodbye and the entire community would shun them 
But that's not what happens here. Here, the father says, here it is. Now, what does that have to do? Here's what it, here's what it shows us. It shows us that God loves us even when we have rejected him and we broke his heart. Before we turned around, before we decided to come back to him, before we repented, God's never ceasing, never stopping, always searching love is set on us. No matter how much we break his heart or reject him. Romans says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's amazing that you might, you might die for somebody that's a good man, but nobody would die for a bad man. And yet Christ, while we were sinners died for us. God loves you even when you have literally spit in his face, turned your back and walked away. Let's look how the story goes. All right. Now, many days later, the younger son. So his dad gives him the stuff. He takes a couple of days to plan it out. He gathers all his stuff, took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in, and here's where the word shows up, reckless living. That word in the original is prodigal, in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, how much did he spend? Everything, right? A severe famine arose in that country. Uh-oh, right? And he began to be in need. So he gets his dad, a wealthy man, big inheritance. He goes and he spends it all. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, the far country, not his home country, somebody that wouldn't know him, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. The most demeaning, worst job a Jewish male could have was feeding pigs. And he's there, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. I mean, that is more disgusting than the inside of a Cadbury egg. Right? Those pods were really disgusting. And no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. Here's what this part shows us, and it's important because I want you to hear this. Not only does God love us when we turn our back on him, when we break his heart, but God loves us while we wander in the darkness. This guy's life started great. He gets the money from his dad. He goes to the far country. He's gone from his dad's rules. He's gone from his dad's ways. He's gone from his dad's control. Nobody knows what he's doing. Everybody around him supporting him. I mean, he's throwing all the greatest parties. He's got the money. He's got the friends that he can buy with the money. He is having the time of his life partying every night. No cares, no concerns, no rules, all right? In modern day living, this is a lot like the good Christian boy or girl that gets in a car and drives off to college and after a week and a half of college just lets loose and says, you know what, all those rules I had at home, they don't apply here, I don't care here, nobody's watching me here, they all encourage me to do this stuff, and they just live recklessly. Now it doesn't just have to happen at college, it happens in other ways. People move to Nashville, Tennessee and come out of college and they kind of sow their wild oats you're talking about. But what's happening here is reckless living. But then... The winds change, and the money's gone, and the friends are gone. Loneliness and despair and begging, the lowest job you could possibly want is all you have. And the point that that Jesus wants to see and tell in the story is that this is the trajectory of sin. That it starts great. You know, when I was growing up, I heard a pastor one time say, and I've heard other pastors say, that, man, there is no fun in sin. And the response to that is then he doesn't know how to do it properly. 
right? I mean, if you, if you sin, there is, in fact, the Bible says, this is the Bible, the Bible says there is pleasure in sin. Do you know that's in the Bible? There is pleasure in sin. It starts great. Listen, if sin wasn't fun, nobody would be doing it. There is pleasure in sin. But the rest of that verse, make sure you hear the rest of the verse, all right? Don't walk out of here and say, I went to Easter service, and the pastor said, just have fun sinning, all right? The rest of that verse says, there is pleasure in sin for a season. For a season. And this guy lived it up. What happens in sin entices you in. It looks great on the outside. It feels really good. And then once you get in, you realize that you are into a place that you can't get out of. Adrian Rogers, a pastor in West Tennessee from years ago, used to say that once sin gets you in, it will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And this is a moment of honesty. There are some of you in this room right now that are wandering in the darkness. Maybe nobody else here knows it. But you are. Maybe it's from death that you've incurred because you've spent on a kind of a wild lifestyle and tried to let everybody think that you've got more than you do. Maybe it's broken relationships that have come in your life and you're just in a place of, of deep darkness through all of that. Maybe it's through sexual sin and somebody you've committed sexual sin with or you participated in or you're in the ongoing process of doing that and you don't know how to get. Maybe it's a secret sin that you don't. That you don't even think anybody knows about. You went on a path that promised so much and has delivered so little. Now, the truth is some of you may be on the front end of that and it's still fun. I can tell you a season is coming when it won't be. I thought about that when I heard a quote from two different people today that I never expected to quote in an Easter sermon, but here they are. Two people that have been successful in the terms of the world beyond what you can imagine, and yet they had these quotes that were just amazing. Here's the first. Anybody know who that is? Angelina Jolie, right? Angelina Jolie said that the unhappiest time of her life was when she had everything she was supposed to have. She talked about her successful career, her money that she made, the husband that she loved, that all that was happening. And this is her quote. She said, I have everything they say you need to be happy, and yet I'm not happy. Now, the second guy is another guy that I never expected to quote. Anybody know who this is? All right? Eminem, right? In the first service, first service, a little older group, uh, said, anybody know who this is? I had blank stares, and uh, my boy, Dirk Wiley, sitting on the front row, said, Slim Shady. I was like, there you go, Dirk. There you go. He said that under his breath because he was afraid of what, what, you know, it's a different kind of street cred in the first service, if you, Right? So this is Eminem, and Eminem, whose successful rap career, all this kind of stuff, this is what he said. He said, you have to be careful what you wish for. He said, I have everything I ever wished for, and it's become a nightmare more than a dream. Man, maybe this morning you're, you're there. Here's what I want you to understand, that God loves you during all of that. Every bit of it. 
Every moment that you're rejecting him and that you're living in the far country, from the moment you set out to the moment you're in the pigsty wondering how in the world did I get here, he loves you in every moment of that. In fact, if we could have a split screen of this story, then what would happen is you would see on one side the guy living recklessly, the son wandering around in darkness, spending all of his wealth. But on the other side, you would see a father who is longing, who is looking, who is waiting for his son to come back. In fact, I get inspiration and strange things come to my mind. If you were around the church, you know that. And illustrations come in strange places. I was driving around yesterday, and I had one of those moments when I heard something that I hadn't heard in probably 10 years. It was one of those songs that I hadn't heard in probably 10 years. And it's amazing that you can't remember what you're supposed to get at the grocery. And a song comes on you in 10 years, and you're singing every word of it at the top of your lungs, okay? So the, the song that I heard yesterday that, that really, and I'll get to a point with this, I promise, is an old, I think it's Trace Atkins' first big hit. It comes from the late 90s, uh, and it's called Every Light in the House is On. How many of you know that song? How many of you, okay? So the story of that song is that some girl has left him and it's terrible and his life is over. And if she ever wants to come back, every light in the house is on. The front yard looks like the crack of dawn. You don't want me to do the rest, I know, but I could, all right? And the point is, if you want to come back, I've illuminated everything for you to see. And as I was listening to that song, that's how my mind works, I'm thinking about this sermon, and my thought goes to, if we saw the father in the midst of what's happening to his son in the far country, the father is there, metaphorically, with every light in the house on. Everything. Looking and waiting for that son to come back. Here's what happens in verse 17. But when he came to himself, that's when the son came to himself. He said, this is ridiculous. I'm sitting here with pigs in a pigsty wanting to eat pig food. And my dad's got hired servants that have enough bread, more than enough. But I'm starving. He says, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go. And then this guy does what every son or daughter has done when they have messed up big time and they got to go admit it to their parents. He comes up with a story to sound good when he gets there. Dad, man, I've sinned against you, against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, I'm not saying he's disingenuous. I think he really believes this. He's just like, I just want to be in the house of my dad as a servant because they have more than I do. And he arose and came to his father. Now, we're going to stop there because we read that and we know the end of the story. Most of us have read this story. We've heard this story many, many times. We know the end of it. But we don't realize how significant it is that he rose and went to the father because the father could do everything he had said. Either A, okay, you'll be my servant for the rest of your life. B just said, nope, you're done. You're not back or had him killed. But here's what happens in the next verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him while he was still a long way off. Now, here's the point I want to make here. God loves you as he brings you back. 
Now, in this story, it's kind of strange because you say, wait, 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 God didn't bring him back. He came back on his own. The son said he came to his senses. The son said, I'll get up and go to the father. But we have to see this story in light of the two stories that came before it, because all of chapter 15 of the book of Luke are three stories. They're trilogy stories. He's telling one group of people three stories. And when you look at the other stories, what you see is in the first one, a woman that loses a coin and turns everything over in the house to find a coin. The second one, you see a guy that loses a sheep and he's got 99 others, but he abandons the 99 to find the one that he He's lost. And the point is that when you've lost something significant, then you do everything you can to find it. Now, here's the thing. We know that in our lives, right? If you've got a wallet and you've got six credit cards in your wallet and you lose one, you don't go, oh, that's all right. I got five more. Not a big deal. Like You scour the house for that, right? You look for it. And here's the point that Jesus is making and what we need to understand. If you're concerned about a coin... If you're worried about a sheep, you have to be desperate for a child. John says, the Apostle John, we come to the Father as the Father draws us. Here's what it means. God will allow and direct your path in your life to give you an opportunity to come back to Him. There was that little part in there that we read that He ran out of money and then a famine hit coincidence, providence, the circumstances of life started to drive him back to the Father. And I believe that God orchestrates the events. He allows some things. I'm not saying he sends everything, but he allows some things, some events. He puts people in your place. He puts situations in your path to draw you back to him. Sometimes that's pain. Sometimes that's that time as you grow and your kids are growing. You're like, how did they get so big? I got to make some decisions. Sometimes it's a health scare. And my conviction, my belief is that every single one of you in this room right now is here as a part of God's drawing you to himself. And it may be in your mind, you think, oh, it's what I do on Easter. And I came out, I don't want to hear. Or I really did get dragged here. I mean, you were joking about that whole thing about the pastor not coming, but I really did get dragged here. Or this, this is just kind of what we are. But and see, circumstantially, that's, you could say all that stuff. We were just looking for a place to go to church, and we looked up and saw your website or saw it on the sign. Thought, hey, that'd be cool. But I believe it's part of God's drawing you to Himself. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, in one of those has one of the boys run away. And as he's running away, just occasionally he hears an, a roar in the distance. If you've read those books, or you've watched those movies, you know that the lion represents God in there, and it's the roar of God just calling out and i love what happens once the sun gets there can we go back one slide to that that scripture verse that has it thank you it says while he was still a long way off his father saw him and then this is what happens his father he's looking for the father to see him a long way off the father had to be watching had to be thinking had to be looking for him and when he does he felt compassion that's a great great greek word i don't give you a bunch of stuff in greek i did too much of that last week but i love this word because that word is splachna got that good right but here's what it means it means that you feel something down in your bowels not vowels bowels all right down deep in your gut it almost sounds like that like a splachna right and what it means is just at the deepest level of who you are. As a parent, you've experienced this when you see maybe a child who might be in danger for a moment or something happens to them. And we call it gut-wrenching. 
It's the same kind of idea. Here's the thing. The father sees him, and it's this bowel level, deep inside level of compassion and love. And the crazy thing is, it's not crazy because God planned it this way. When you look in the New Testament, that word is used most of Jesus as he looks with shplachna on the crowds that have gathered around him. Deep compassion. And then he runs. And listen, grown men in that day didn't run. They don't really run today. Right? If you see a grown man running, something is wrong. Like if you're not at a competition or something, if you're just in the mall and a grown man runs past you, you're not going to think, oh, that's, that's normal behavior there. That's good, right? Something is wrong. The other day at our house, we heard the, uh, um, we heard the sound that strikes fear into the hearts of all of us which is the garbage truck when the uh, garbage is not at the street. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's too early. It's not supposed to be here. And all I heard was I heard the garbage truck. This was on Thursday, so Susan's out of school. They're all out of school. And I hear Susan go, wow, garbage. And I sprint out the door. Like, got to get that garbage to the street, right? Something's wrong. I'm full out running, right? Passed out for three hours after that, but... Like, full-on running, right? We, got, we don't run. Guys don't run. Well, in their day and time, you really didn't run because to run, you had a little long um, tunic, was a little dress-like thing, and in order to run, you had to lift it up and run. And if you lifted it up, you exposed your ankles <laughs> and even your shins. It's disgraceful. We've come a long way, haven't we, right? For better or for worse. But he runs. He doesn't care. I watched the NCAA tournament, NCAA tournament over the last few days. You, you know what this reminds me of? It's on a bigger level than this. But like when um, watching the benches of the teams when somebody hits a really good shot, big shot, they don't care. Like, oh, they're watching us on TV. Let's be a little demure here. Let's not get too excited. Like, it just happens. One of my favorite scenes of all time from the NCAA tournament um, happened like in 1983. A guy named Jim Valvano was coaching these underdogs named NC State. And they won on the last second shot. Weren't supposed to have a chance. It's one of the greatest shots of all time. And when they go to him, he's just literally running around the court without anybody, just looking all around. And if you went up to ask him, he goes, were you, were you upset about how, how crazy you looked? You know his answer? No. Because in that moment, that's who I am. That's what I did. This guy didn't care. Son's home. He hugs him. He kisses him. And then he shows us one of the most remarkable things in this whole story. That God loves you even as he baptizes you with grace and makes all things new. Look at what happens here in the next part of the story. So he gets there. He hugs him. He loves him. He puts his arms around him. And then he gives him some gifts. And his son said to him, Dad, he starts his speech, Dad, Dad, I'm sorry, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's almost like the dad's like, shh, 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 no, 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 stop, stop, no, I don't want to hear, hey, servants, servants, stop, I'll be with you in a minute, servants, get the best robe in the house, go get my ring, um, let's get some shoes for the boy, he's, the name of shoes on, and then, you know that cat that we've been waiting on, you know that cat, yeah, the big one, yeah, the big one. The one that we've been saving for this. Yeah, go get it, kill it, put it on, we're eating it today. All right, now what were you saying, son? Now here's what we don't understand in there. Is those three gifts were very significant. First of all, he says, give him the robe, the best robe in the house. Can I ask you a question? Who did the best robe in the house probably belong to? 
the dad, right? The, son, they, the, the servant doesn't have a good robe hanging out somewhere, right? The best robe in the house was the dad's. And so now he comes home, and he's just going to come home and say, Dad, I'm just going to be your servant. I'm just going to be your servant. The dad goes, no, you're not. You're my son. Go get my robe. Put it on him. So he's dressed in the father's clothes. Secondly, it gives them a sing, uh, the ring. And their ring in that day, they would have a seal on it. That's how they would sign papers. It was a sign of authority. They would press it into wax and say, this is my seal, my signature. It was a symbol of authority there. And then sandals were a sign of wealth. Servants didn't wear sandals. Sons wore sandals. He says, go get the sandals and put them on him. He's my son. The son requested the status of a servant. And the dad denied his request and restored him as a son. Here's something that's just mind-blowing, all right? When we realize the depth of the sin that we have, the natural reaction in us is to come to God and say, hey, how can I work that off? And God says, you can't. We have to know God based on grace. The sweetest, richest word in Christianity. Grace. Let me ask you a question. Where's the shame for the son for what he did? It's not there. Who's the only one in the whole thing that gets any kind of shame? The dad. When he runs after him. Where's the punishment? Where's he going to learn his lesson? Where's the punishment for this guy? He took all of his dad's money and squandered it. Where's the punishment? There's none. Who paid for it? Who paid for all the wild living of the son? You tell me. Who paid for it? The dad did. I love the story. He doesn't have Jesus telling the story and going, he said, let's get all that. Let's have a big feast. And after the feast is over, then we'll figure out how you can settle up your accounts with me. It is scandalous with grace. Now, I told you we get to Easter and we're back, okay? Because here's what I want you to see. When you talk about the Easter story, when you talk about this story, the cross is Jesus running after us. The horror of the crucifixion, the scandal of the crucifixion, the shame of the crucifixion. Listen, we can talk about all the horrors of the crucifixion and they are numerous and lengthy. And it is one of those things that should make our stomachs turn. We were, last Sunday night, we watched, um, I don't know if any of y'all watched this, The Passion Live was on Fox, and we watched that. And while we were watching it, there on national TV, the whole family's in there watching it, and, uh, and Tyler Perry, who's narrating the thing, starts to describe the spikes going through Jesus' hands and starts to describe the gory details of the crucifixion. And just out of the blue, Maddie starts crying. Now, honestly, Maddie's a six-year-old girl. Just starting to cry isn't necessarily that rare of an occurrence in our house. Okay, it just that drama happens. All right. And so but she comes running over to me and I think I think her brothers have said something to her. I'm thinking she didn't get what she wanted. She asked me for something I forgot about. And she comes over to me and she gets in. I said, what's wrong, baby? What is wrong? What's going on? She said, I'm about what they said they did to Jesus. And she is full on crying. They would have hung him naked. In as public of a place as you can imagine. I talked about this Wednesday night because we talked about the cross. Imagine if you went to Indian Lake shopping area. And there, right where those fountains are, was a guy hung up completely naked, beaten to the point beyond recognition as a human, with part of his intestines probably coming out. 
That's Jesus running to you. Because the only reason he did it was for you. You know what he gained because of the cross? He didn't gain the Father's approval. He already had that before he came. He didn't gain righteousness. He already had that before he came. What he gained was the opportunity for you to come to him. He paid the price for our sins. And then what we celebrate on Easter is him making all things new. He took the garments of our sin and has clothed us in the robes of his father's righteousness. He has taken our weakness and given us authority over sin and corruption. And the power is now available to us. He has given us a privileged position as his children, not servants, not slaves, not as one who walks off our salvation, but as children of God. We have access to him like a child has access to a dad. Listen, my four kids have access to me that you don't have. Last night, in the middle of the night, our youngest, Ava, was distraught because she couldn't find a sock. And she came, fortunately, to Susan's side of the bed last night and was weeping because she couldn't find a sock. Now, here's the truth. I have four kids, and I've had kids for 13 years, Do you know how many times I've been awakened by a face staring at me at night? I don't either. It's a lot. And here's what I'll tell you. You know what happens? As best I can, I help them. I do whatever they need because they are my children and they have access to me. If you show up at my house and I wake up in the middle of the night and your face is looking at me, my fists are coming out. All right? They have access that you don't have. What happens in the resurrection is that Jesus says, not only are your sins forgiven, you have been completely restored to the family of God. If the cross and resurrection aren't true, then this is just a cute little story that we can all tell and feel good about ourselves. But if it's true, that means there is no sin too wicked, there is no country too far, there is no recklessness too severe, there is no shame too great, no corruption too advanced, no pigsty too filthy. If the cross and resurrection are true, then your future is not determined by your history or your identity is not determined by what you've done in the past. Your future is defined by the promises of God and the glory of who He is. And all you have to do is to receive the gift. It's grace. That's it. Jesus Pay the price for your rebellion. You didn't have to do anything. Just accept it. That's not the end of the story, although that's a pretty good ending, but it's not the end. Look at what the rest of the story says, starting in verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and came near the house, he's out in the field. And he's like, something's going on. I don't understand. There's music. There's dancing. Nobody told me about it. He called one of the servants and said, hey, what is happening? He says, you're not going to believe this. Your brother's home. And your father went and got the best cow out there. And he has received him back safe and sound. It's amazing. It's a party. And the older brother said, that's awesome. Let's go have fun together. Is that what happened? No, here's what happens. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and said, hey, come on. I've served you. I've never disobeyed you is what he told his father. You never gave me a goat even. Now you're killing the calf. The son of yours. If there are air quotes in the Bible, that's where it is. Right? The son of yours. 
devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the calf for him. And the dad looks at him, and I love this. The dad looks at him and says, son. But he didn't call him servant. He didn't get mad at him. He just says, son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate me glad your brother was dead, is alive. He was lost and is found. The last thing that we kind of see in this whole passage is this. That God loves you even when you're too proud to receive his grace. Older brother seems to the younger brother. He's good. He's upright. He's doing all the right things, but he's outside the house. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus had a very specific audience in mind when he told this story because it tells us that at the beginning of chapter 15, you can go back and look at that later, but at the beginning of chapter 15, it tells us that he's there talking to really religious people who were mad about the kind of people that Jesus was listening to. And while he seems like the good and upright brother, he is actually as far away from the father and the father's heart as you can be. It's not like the father at all. You ever notice that religious people can be some of the most unloving people in the world? self-righteous, filled with hate. And here's the reason for that is because religion cleans you up on the outside, but your heart remains unchanged. I've got four kids. Have I mentioned that? I've got four kids. And in my raising my four kids, one of the most interesting times in all of them raising them all was the stage we call potty training. I mean, you just go nuts because you cheer for things you never cheer for at any other time in your life, Right? You play games like Sink the Cheerio, and you're just, some of you will understand that later, but you do things like, you know, just like, oh, you pooped! That's awesome! It's the greatest day of all! You pooped your, at the party! Like, when else do you do that in life? Like, cheer over that, right? And here's the thing, in God's sense of humor, He puts that stage at the same stage as kids are developing independence. I do it myself, Daddy. Right? And so as you're going through that, sometimes that leads to things that aren't good. Uh, I read a story this week about a dad who said that he had a four-year-old girl gone through potty training, was in the process of that, all that, and said she disappeared into the bathroom for a while, like 20 or 30 minutes. He said, now, if that's a grown male adult, you don't worry about that because they like read three or four magazines, everything's okay. But when it's a four-year-old girl, you're like, something's wrong. And so he had friends over and said, I'll go check on her and see if she's okay. And said, all of a sudden, all he heard was, Wah! So he goes back there to see his four-year-old daughter. And what he discovers is poop everywhere. Everywhere. The, the, the friend who didn't have kids at the time is like sweating and like crying and like, I don't know how she got it there. I don't know how it, I mean, it was on the walls, it was in her hair, it was on the sink, it was, you know, all over the place. And she said, he said as he was standing there, his four-year-old daughter just kept saying, I try to do it myself, daddy. And he said while he was sitting there in this moment of holding his nose and worrying about all that was happening, he said God just kind of said to him, this is what it looks like when you try to clean yourself up from your own sins. See, Isaiah 54 says that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Father. But here's the deal. He still loves you even when you're too proud to receive it. And whether you are rebellious or religious, the real truth you need to understand today is this. You can choose to stay outside of God's love forever.
forever. It's a choice you can make. This story ends without resolution. We don't know what happened to the older brother, and that's because this story, what makes it great, is that it's an invitation in itself. And the question that you have today is simply this, and this is the only question that really matters before you on Easter Sunday morning. Have you accepted the free gift of grace that Jesus Christ offers to you for the forgiveness of your sins? In just a moment, we're going to have a time. Band's going to come back up, and they're going to play. And I'm going to lead you in a moment of of, of thinking through that. But if you haven't answered that question in your life, then God has orchestrated this moment right now for you to deal with that question. Have you accepted God's free gift of grace? I, I know you got. I know you may have objections. But listen, I'm, I'm a religious guy. The older brother was religious. He wasn't in the house. He's lost because he can't accept the grace. Well, I know a lot of Christians, and they're just hypocrites. Yeah, they, they, there are a lot of that. I'm kind of upset about that too. There are times that I am one of those. I know Christians and they're weird. Yeah, we're, we're, we're that. And God still loves us. Because it really doesn't matter who we are. It's about you and your relationship with God. And so don't let other people determine your eternal destiny for you. They can't. It's between you and God. And some of you today are in the far country and you're as rebellious as you can be. And you're here because someone says you've got to go to church with me on Easter Sunday. Because they've been praying for you. And you may not even know this. They've been praying for you for years. Or maybe you're just on the front end of that rebellion and you've walked away from your faith and you need to come back. Some of you are here and you've been as good as you can possibly be, but you haven't accepted the gift of grace from God and you can't do it on your own.